Hi, and welcome to Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. Author of Remembered, I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. I'm a writer, host, presenter, academic, and a reader. I love being read to. In each podcast episode, a writer will read to us and answer three questions. We might talk about how they developed the characters, the sense of place, why they wrote the book, something they learned through research, and more. Ultimately, through each episode, I hope to get to know each author a little more, and I hope that you do too. Each episode is about 30 minutes. You'll find the author's bio and a bit about the book below the episode. Thanks for joining in. So, Paul, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. Oh, thank you very much for having me, and I'm delighted to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. So how about we just dive right in? Sure. I'm always really curious about where ideas come from for authors, and part of it is because I'm nosy, and part of it is just because really I'm just, you know, I'm curious. When you get a book in your hands, you want to know like where it all started from. So with that idea in mind, where did the idea for The Weighing of the Heart come from? Well, I guess there were two um, there were two strands that sort of came together in the in the idea. Um, it's a book about a um, a British guy who uh, is living in New York, and he moves in with um, a couple of older ladies in um, a sort of opulent apartment in the Upper East Side. Um, and together with a young woman that lives next door, um, uh, they steal a priceless work of art from the from the lady's uh, wall. And it's an ancient Egyptian scene. And as the um, stress of the theft continues to sort of work on them, the imagery of ancient Egypt starts to come to life around them. And it's unclear whether that's in his head or um, whether it's supposed to be really happening. So I suppose there was one strand which was about ancient Egypt. and. Um, I'd sort of work, been working on some ideas for a for a book, and I had this idea of the theft of a painting in 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 my mind. Um, and then I went to a fantastic exhibition at the British Museum called the Ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead, and talked about the sort of traditions of ancient Egypt, what they believed happened to you when you when you die. And um, this image really caught in my in my head that you. Um, there were weighing scales with your heart on one side and a feather on the other. And if your heart was was um, was heavier than the feather, then um, you would be eaten by this awful monster called the devourer. And um, it really sort of stuck in my head. And one of the things that stuck in my head was um, that people were afraid that their heart would speak up against them. So they would get to that point and they would try and say, you know, oh, no, I'm, I'm perfectly innocent. But their heart would, would reveal uh, you know the, the true extent of their of their crimes. I just thought this fitted so well with 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 my idea. And then the other half of it was that I really wanted to set something in New York. And at the time, I was living in London, where I'm living again now. But I'd been sort of obsessed by New York for a long time. Um, went to university for a year in Pittsburgh, and while I was there, we visited New York a couple of times spent a couple of really brilliant long weekends there um, and I really wanted to get back there. So part of what led me to write the book was to sort of, in some ways, act out this fantasy 
of living in in New York and in a sense you know as the as the narrator to pretend that I was there to pretend I lived there to pretend I was walking these these streets and um and then towards the end of finishing it I actually got a job in New York so I managed to move over there and in that sense life imitated art so it was a kind of curious way to arrive at the at the at the finished product Oh, how cool is that? That it just, yeah, that the one seems to have led away or opened the door to the other one. How yeah. awesome. So with the New York that you know, just, I don't know, like that imagination and all that's possible, could we have a reading, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just start from the beginning and I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll start from, um, from the beginning of chapter one. Sooner or later, everybody comes to New York and I was no exception. For me, it was art school that brought me over, and I left behind the brash primary colours of late 90s London gladly and without remorse. Here I could reinvent myself, as others had before me, among the shining slabs of a city that seemed to have scale where others only had size, where history was measured in the minutes rather than the centuries, and where each of its 10 million inhabitants began their lives anew each morning when they awoke and pulled up the blinds. After college, I did everything I could to remain, winning a job and the work permit that came with it at the Bougainville Gallery in Chelsea and spending the next few years living in a tiny apartment in Greenpoint with my girlfriend, Hannah, working together at the gallery each day and growing gradually further and further apart. In early spring in 2011, things finally came to a head and I moved out for reasons I don't really want to go into here. I left and went to stay on the couch of a former colleague in whom I'd increasingly been confiding. His name was not Jeff, but I have to give him a name, and Jeff will do as well as any other. Hannah's name wasn't really Hannah either. Jeff had two aunts who lived uptown in one of those huge late 19th century apartment blocks where wealthy families often take up a whole floor. Their apartment was enormous, sprawling, Jeff said, with an elegant roof garden looking out in a wide panorama over Central Park but it was also ragged and unloved and slowly rotting away. His aunts only lived there two days a week, spending the rest of their time at their other home on Long Island. To make sure the place didn't collapse completely, they usually took in a lodger, and as luck would have it, Jeff told me, they needed one right now. Since I was desperate to find somewhere to live, he would take me round to meet them, and we could see whether we hit it off. Far from being desperate to find somewhere to live, I was in fact quite enjoying my evenings in his apartment in Clinton Hill, watching reality TV with his witty and outspoken girlfriend, Severin, whose parents had named her after the character in the Velvet Underground song, Venus in Furs. But I'm a very suggestible person, and I must admit that as Jeff and I talked about it more, I found myself drifting off into an agreeable fantasy about life in that cavernous apartment a stone's throw from Central Park the white whirl of the Guggenheim visible from the living room window, MoMA, the Met, and I began to feel really quite excited about the whole idea. For the five days each week when the Peacock sisters would be away, I would have the whole palatial penthouse to myself, and it was pleasant to feel, even in a vague and materialistic sense, that I'd be making some progress in my life after my breakup with Hannah, which I felt had set me back a step as the rest of my friends busied themselves getting married getting pregnant, getting comfortably settled in for the next stage of life. So I went up there with Jeff and Severin after work the next Wednesday, Severin boasting during the subway ride that the sisters viewed her as the daughter they never had, 
and they introduced me to Marie and Rose Peacock. We all had a glass of California red, and Marie and Rose took me on a quick whirl around the apartment, including the small bedroom beside the roof garden that would be mine. Then it was time for the Peacocks to leave for the theatre, and we all took the lift down to the street. As Jeff flagged them down a cab, Marie Peacock asked me a few questions about my job, tugged thoughtfully at her coat cuffs, peered into my eyes, and abruptly proposed rent of $100 a week, a sum so minuscule for the Upper East Side she might as well have made it one peppercorn. I couldn't shake her hand fast enough. Oh, I love how she used places in New York. It's been ages since I've been back to right. the U.S. Um, and like to New York, so it was just nice hearing like different locations. Yeah. So thank you for that. Well, I think you know it was part of my attempt to conjure it up for myself. You know, as I was living here and wishing to be there. You know that I um, wanted to make it real myself on paper, and I hope that hope that does come across to the reader. You know, I was really curious about, so New York is a place that I feel like every time people are like, oh, are you from the U.S.? Like, um, what part of New York are you from? And you're like, <laughs> um, actually, uh, I'm, I'm not from New York. And they're like, yeah, 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 cool. Um, what part of California? You like, like, <laughs> and then people kind of, <laughs> people in their, either in, because of their imagination or books or movies, or even having gone there at one point or never going there, people seem to have an idea of New York and what it either looks like or smells like or sounds like or how people are. And I'm really curious how, as an author, you used kind of like that imagined New York, but then also the real New York and your New York and how you make room for, I guess, all of them in the book and like what you use. Where are the, where are the lines, kind of what can you make up and what needs to stay true to New York? Yeah, well, um, I was really conscious that, you know, the New York in my imagination was a fantasy. Some aspects are, are real, but there were some aspects that I, you know, was, was, was holding on to in my, own, in my own head. So I made the narrator, Nick, also a, a British person who had, who had moved over there. And I wanted that to come across for him, too, that his expectations of New York are unrealistic his depiction of New York is is unrealistic and I wanted some of that element of fantasy to come across in it and then like you know when I was thinking about the New York that I loved um there are so many different uh different New Yorks that that caught my imagination in popular culture in in the first place you know the New York of the Catcher in the Rye the New York of of Simon and Garfunkel the New York of Public Enemy, you know, they're all very uh, different. So for this one, I chose to sort of focus on this kind of posh Upper East Side New York, but then also like young people in the art world who are around sort of uh, money and opulence and uh, high culture can't necessarily afford to fully participate in it and um i think that plays into the theme of of the theft and 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 then i think in that regard one thing that i really realized when i moved there was that to a large extent the center of gravity for young people and the center of gravity for culture had moved long ago from brooklyn to manhattan uh, sorry from manhattan to brooklyn so in an earlier draft, 
I had a lot of Manhattan locations, which as soon as I moved there, I realized, you know, it would be blatantly ridiculous for this person to be living in this kind of place in Manhattan. And I moved them to somewhere in Brooklyn that I thought would be more realistic. And the same with like where their artist studios are and that kind of thing. And um, yeah, um, you know, uh, more of the city opened up to me when I moved there than the locations that are, are more usually seen in in popular culture. Oh, how lovely. It's like that living research, like life is research. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the next book I'm working on is also set in New York, but it's set in, in the 70s, in the real sort of fierce city, crime plague New York days. Mm-hmm. So that's involving like also a level of imagination and a level of uh, historical research that I'm then sort of placing on top of my, um, you know, lived experience of, of being there. I love that. I also really like that you love New York. It just seems like, you know, when you're writing about a place that you love and a place that lives in your imagination, but also in your heart and in your mind and that you've walked those streets, it just seems like it makes something different possible in terms of smells and sounds and, and the way that you bring that alight to life for for readers. So I think it's just what a great opportunity to write about a place that you love. Yeah, I mean, I hope that passion comes through. And um, one thing that's interesting writing this new one in the 70s is that I have to cut, I have to kind of rein back some of that passion because it's unrealistic for a narrator in 1975 or 6 to be so enthusiastic and romanticizing about New York because it's a very different place that is really in a lot of in a lot of trouble in in different ways and for somebody to be so romantic about it w- w- wouldn't really fit i think it made me laugh because i was thinking about like new jersey in the 90s and um and being like wow i can't wait to leave like you know <laughs> so like somewhere there's someone writing about a character who's just like oh yeah this is so wonderful and i'm so glad to be in south jersey and i'm gonna read it and be like Psha. but <laughs> exactly <laughs> But yeah. somewhere someone had a really, you know, someone loved it. So, but can we hear more of the book, please? Can you read some more to us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, right. So this is from about halfway through. And uh, by this time, Nick, the narrator, has started to spend a lot more time with, with Lydia, who is the neighbor who lives next door. I began to be troubled by a recurring dream in which Lydia and I were looking for a lost ring on the boat from Boston to Provincetown. We couldn't find it anywhere and the dream always ended with Lydia heading off to search for it in another part of the boat and then disappearing completely, at which point I would wake up usually quite upset. The dream had some basis in reality. I had actually once travelled on the ferry from Boston to Provincetown, but not with Lydia, with Hannah. We'd flown up to Boston for a few days' holiday soon after getting together, a successful trip that had helped us cement our developing relationship. Anna had told me beforehand that I would probably find Boston quite a European-looking city, with antiquated buildings and illogical higgledy-piggledy streets and so on, and it was true that there was a handsome old brickwork bridge over the Charles River that wouldn't have looked out of place in London or Berlin, and that the 17th-century graveyard where Paul Revere is buried is enjoyably untidy and disordered. 
But in my opinion, the city still had the unmistakably tough and unsentimental tang of America, that feeling that if an 18-wheel truck making an important delivery needed to get to a depot one day, the residents would quite happily demolish the Cathedral of the Holy Cross to let it through and concrete over Benjamin Franklin's birthplace to give it a bit of space to turn round. Anna had laughed at that. She'd found my sense of humour a real novelty when we first met, which had been very flattering. She asked where else I'd visited in America so far. Nowhere really, I said. It's New York I like. I'll have to take you down to Johnstown one day, she said. My hometown, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. That is one nook of America you will not want to miss out on. In Johnstown, we have the world's steepest vehicular inclined plane. No kidding. I laughed. Are your parents still there, I asked her. Oh yeah, she said. They like practically run the place. My dad was like the mayor for 15 years. His family were in the steel business and everything way back. In the 19th century, our company was the world's leading producer of barbed wire. That's another Johnstown fact. Hey, you asked. Are they are they wealthy then, I asked. I had found Americans to be much less wary of questions like this than the British. She shrugged. I don't know. I mean, look at this ring. She showed me the ring her parents had given her for her birthday. We were tucked into a corner of a cafe by the window and it caught the warm rays of the late spring sunshine as she turned it this way and that. They're always giving me things like this. She looked doubtfully around at the other customers. Maybe I shouldn't have brought it on this trip. We took the fast ferry out to Provincetown the next day, one and a half hours each way, out across the mouth of Cape Cod Bay, the arm of the peninsula sticking way out into the Atlantic, flexing its biceps. And as we walked along the dunes on the northern headland, buffeted by the ocean winds, I found myself, most unusually, thinking of England, staring out into the haze of blue sky and blue sea, overlapping white at the horizon. Most of the time in Manhattan, surrounded by New York on all sides, the subway below me, the skyscrapers above me, it was hard to believe England still existed. But here I felt I could almost see it, out east across the thousands of miles of ocean following the curve of the earth. Unsettled, I closed my eyes and turned away and the feeling soon dissipated. That night, on the way back to Boston, we stood at the prow of the boat, holding tight to the white front rail as the blisteringly powerful headwind tore through our hair and billowed up our clothes like sails. Oh God, did I drop it? She said suddenly. What? I asked. She was looking at her hands. My ring, did I drop it? She stepped back from the rail and looked down at the deck. The wind, did the wind catch it? She said. I began to look around. Hannah leant over the rail, stared apprehensively into the churning, roiling swell of the ocean. We looked all around the prow and then retraced our steps around the boat with increasing pessimism. I definitely had it when I got on the boat because I took it off when I washed my hands in the bathroom, she said. Did you definitely put it back on? I did, I remember I did, she said. But I've checked in there anyway and it's not in there. I asked the barman if he would let us know if anything was handed in and left him my phone number. I don't think either of us felt very hopeful. Just before the boat reached Boston, Hannah and I returned to the prow, and she gazed sadly overboard. It must have come off when we were holding the rail, she said. It must have come off my finger. It was never a very tight fit. Oh dear, Mum will be disappointed. Oh dear, I said, pulling her into the circle of my arm. To cheer her up, I took her out that night to a very well-reviewed seafood restaurant in the North End, and by the end of the evening she'd almost forgotten about it. And I thought I had too. After all, it was many years ago now.
but perhaps sometimes these memories are buried closer to the surface than we think. Oh, how nice. How really touching. So I, I couldn't help but notice that the main character's name is Nick. Yeah. And it's set in New York. And then of course that made me think of the New York Knicks. And um, <laughs> I'm so curious, <laughs> what did you enjoy most about writing The Weighing of the Heart? That's a good point about Nick. And I hadn't consciously thought of, of that, but it is a really good link. Um, the Nick I was thinking of when I named him uh, Nick was um, Nick Carraway uh, from The Great Gatsby. And I um, wanted to, there were definitely parallels with The Great Gatsby. Not that I'm trying to say that um, my book is a sort of consummate um, work of, uh, of literary genius like Gatsby but I sort of wanted the reader to know that any parallels they picked up on I'd done it deliberately and I wasn't trying to sort of um you know pull the wool over their eyes so I I gave him the same name as as um as Nick Carraway what I enjoyed most was probably in a sense what we were discussing before about living out this fantasy but um I think generally when it comes to like drafting a book um what I've found I enjoy the most is when I've sort of hammered out like a basic draft and then I go back and I just sort of go over every detail and try and improve every part of it and read some of it out and have my phone read some of it back to me and um I think of it sort of as if you're sort of um rolling out pastry with loads of lumps in it and you start from one end and the lumps start to get flatter and flatter, but you're also like pushing a load of lumps up into a big giant lump at the end. So you're pushing these lumps along and then you get to the end and you're, you're faced with this final bit. And with both these books, it's been the ending that's been the most difficult to flatten out and get it uh, perfectly smooth. And with the, I mean, with the current one, I'm still like well in that process and, um, you know, could could take me several more years to get those lumps flattened out. Oh, how do you get your phone to read it to you? So there's um, something on the phone called um, I can't remember what it's called, but if you have a have an iPhone, you can s- switch something on so that it will read out any given anything that's on the screen. Basically, maybe it's called Screen Reader. I'll um. I'll give you a little blast of what it sounds like. Uh, it's far from perfect. 15. I was waiting outside, committee room three at the U.S. Senate, sweating in my best wool suit, waiting to be called to give evidence. Gene Kranz had gone in first, and I'd seen him briefly when we both arrived. So you can see that it's a sort of robotic voice. But actually, one thing I like about that is that um, it creates the impression in your mind that you haven't written it. It's certainly not your voice. So it's as if you're reading something as a, uh, it's as if you're listening to something as a, as a reader or as a listener and somebody else has written it. So I find it really useful when I've been writing a draft, I'll go somewhere, you know, go, go and pick my son up from nursery, say, or wherever I might be going, go for a walk, put it on in my headphones and you listen to it with new ears or uh with a new sort of viewpoint and yeah that's one of the the reasons i find it so useful oh thank you i may have to try that i usually end up um i read i write out loud 
So as mm. I'm writing, I um, it's like so it becomes kind of this actor's voice in my head of these different characters, and they they just act out like each character, and um, then I can write it. Like once I can hear it in that way, I can write it. And so, but it always makes it interesting when I'm on like the train or something, because I didn't used to write in public, but now I do. Because right. I'm like, you know what, if I hear one more conversation where the person's going, between you and me, someone's <laughs> cheating on their wife. And I'm like, whoa, you know what? Like, what if I know her? So <laughs> so now I'll be on the car- on the, on the train and characters will be dying and I'll be doing whatever and I don't even mind. But yeah. I, <laughs> so I'm reading it out loud, just doing it and like, yes, I'm going to push you down. I don't even know. But I like the idea also of something else reading it in this other voice that's it kind of seems like it might force you to look at the tensions because since that voice isn't um, able to do tension or like conflict in that sort of way, it makes you as the writer make sure that the words that you're creating that imagery in a way that mm, the that's voice true. Can't. It also is good for picking up um, typos and missing words that your eyes may just sort of scoot across because you you know you you you're reading what you expect to read essentially. And for the, I think reading out is also really important for the rhythm of the sentences. And um, this morning when I was thinking about which parts to read for you for the podcast, I actually noticed a bit in the sentence, in a a sentence that could be improved. I've changed it in the word file. If there's ever a, um, if there's ever another printing, it can change in there, but... (laughs) I love that. Like you're you're still going through and being like, you know what? Let me tighten this up and let me like do like it's like a never ending novel. Have you ever seen David Mitchell uh read anything? Not the comedian, the um the novelist. He just constantly like critiques himself as he's going along. Like he'll say, Oh god, did I use that word again? Unbelievable. It's like I mean it, it it's very engaging. But I think that oh, yeah. I, I think that he is somebody who returns to their text and um Sharon Olds, uh the poet who I'm a really big fan of, she um she'll return to poems and and redraft them, you know, published poems published many years ago sometimes and redraft them and bring them out in new in new volumes. Um but I think for for me generally I mean I've got a full time job and it's so much it, it's so hard even to sort of write try and write one book on top of having a full-time job the idea of the idea of sort of continuing to return to older work it would just be absolutely impossible so <laughs> i think once it once it's finished it's it's closed yeah yeah i don't blame you <laughs> but with that in mind can we have one final reading please absolutely so this is um this is just a little bit later in the book so we're about sort of two-thirds of the way through Lydia asked me to tell her about how my interest in ancient Egypt had begun. Was it back home in England? Had my parents encouraged it? As I may have mentioned, I tend to dislike reminiscing. But she insisted, and almost without realising it, I found myself back at the British Museum as a teenager, following an unruly crocodile of classmates in a long diagonal line across the enormous windswept museum forecourt all of us dressed in our absurd, identical white shirts and black ties, the traffic on the streets outside the museum's fearsome fence bumping and spitting like a wounded snake, as it always seemed to back then, and may still do today for all I know. 
We passed through sheets of dust, past Greek vases and Chinese ceramics, Victorian tea sets and Japanese mirrors, our teacher mumbling facts and anecdotes in an uninspired fashion, introducing us to the Egypt galleries with accounts of the fertile earth in the Nile Valley, the exact dimensions of the pyramids, and the distasteful details of how the Egyptians got the brains out of the skulls of their dead. Ornate gilded sarcophagi ranged around us like sunbathers, and I was thinking about that bit in The Catcher in the Rye when the little kids ask him where to find their mummies in them tunes. There were too many of us in the gallery, and some horseplay from the group of idiots next to me meant I got pushed to one side, found myself suddenly standing right up against a small glass case containing a tiny jade-coloured object set on a gold mount. The group began to move off into the other half of the room, but I stayed put, peering through the glass at this delicate little jewel that seemed to collect and draw in the light from the room around me. I read the explanatory label next to it, which said it was the heart scarab of Pharaoh Sobakam the I and originated from Thebes in 1590 BC. The label went on to explain that heart scarabs help protect you at the moment of death, giving the full story, so familiar to me now, of the ostrich feather and the weighing scales, Anubis and the devourer. I broke away from the school party soon after that, not an unusual occurrence in those days, I'm afraid and left the museum to meander through the spokes of Covent Garden, black taxis jostling in the early evening streets around me, narrow between the Edwardian four-stories and the dusky glass fronts of the chain stores, the pedestrians overtaking the traffic, swamping it, the pitch battle of the Strand, buses mounting the pavement, cyclists shooting behind them, and a glimpse of the river flashing down every side street. I moved on to the tall, thin crush of Fleet Street, the secret legal alleyways, the monumental dome of St Paul's gleaming through coats of dirt. It was a habit of mine at the time to make these peripatetic journeys if I ever found myself alone in central London, an attempt to assuage some ill-defined satisfaction, I suppose, which more often than not ended up having the opposite effect. The rolling city tide was draining away around me into tube stations, buses and cabs, the shop shutters sliding shut, like grimy metallic mouths and the pub doors swinging open to reveal rooms packed to the rafters like freight containers for animals on a rough ocean crossing, the creatures inside thrashing madly against the sides of the boxes, howls and puffs of breath escaping from the gaps where the planks don't meet. I pressed on and caught sudden peeps of the single skyscraper the city could boast back then, its shoulder, its knee, its ugly black head, Window cleaners drifted up and down it as London sank into dusk around me, lights snapping on along the bending stripes of the streets, the Thames one way, the golden shimmer of Liverpool Street the other, and in the distance, centre point, standing stark, grim and dutiful like a tombstone. In a deserted canyon street, I leant against the wall of a law firm or a bank and unclenched my fist and watched the jade scarab glow in my palm in the darkness. I could feel the scarab in my wallet as I travelled home on the commuter train that night, rustling through the brick vaults of Farringdon and Blackfriars, creeping stealthily towards the flatlands of South London. At London Bridge, the train rose up like a barge in a lock to float along on a level with the dirty rooftops, the rust and the graffiti, the jutting spires and the filthy window frames, the rude tangle of rails and cables and streetlights the upper floor doors of converted warehouses, 
opening out onto nothing. Somewhere south of the track, a small fire raged. I'd had enough of it all. Oh, you know, I love that you have some, like, you know how people have this image of New York and they, they love it and it's like their, their place to be. And then in the U.S., people have this version of London in their head and it's kind of, um, right. you know, what is it like? Or And I love that you kind of, you put something in there for both readers. Like no matter what part of, you know, the Atlantic you're on, there is kind of this, this image of place that will resonate either with your lived or imagined experience. And I just think like, what a joy that is. I recognize some of the places that you were talking about in London. <laughs> That's good to hear. I think one of the aspects of him being a British person, you know, it struck me about halfway through that, um, that I could write about London as well. I could, I could write about his, his past back home and that that would fit very well with the theme. And then, and I really enjoyed sort of the the contrast of writing about London and writing about writing about New York. Oh wow! So where can we find the weighing of the heart? Where can we buy it? So it's obviously uh, available on Amazon, like like everything. And um, if you wanted to get the um, uh, the the Kindle edition, obviously that's the the best place, and it's it's only ninety nine p. Um, but if you want to go elsewhere, then Amazon Waterstones website sells it. Uh, Foils sells it. I think that um, Blackwell's sells it. And those are probably the best places, I think. Wonderful. Paul, thank you so much for joining us for this episode, for reading to us, and of course, for sharing kind of those behind the pages scenes of the book. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Bookable Space. If you don't already have the book and want to read more, buy it, borrow it from your local library, read it, and if you enjoy it, review it if you haven't already. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon with your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. Follow me on Twitter at YBattlefelton, on Instagram on why I write Battlefelton for pictures, interview insights, and more.